You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for June 6, 2021, the second Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 1. I don't know about you, but I hate waking up in the middle of the night. As I get older, it gets harder and harder for me to go back to sleep. Not that it's ever been easy for me exactly, but recently, if the dog wakes us up at 3 a.m. because we didn't take her out just before bed, it could be 5 or 6 o'clock by the time I finally get back to sleep. Now compare this to the fact that, unfortunately, unlike for Jewel, it's infamously easy for me to fall asleep at the beginning of the night. I mean like within three minutes of my head hitting the pillow easy. So you can understand my frustration that I can't seem to duplicate this in the middle of the night. Given their increasing length and given my dog's penchant for early morning bathroom breaks, which I'm convinced aren't always about the bathroom, I think sometimes she just wants a change of scenery, I've come to think that these periods of sleeplessness with which I'm growing increasingly familiar, are actually rather interesting as a phenomenon. I've outlined dissertation chapters during them. I've written long emails to Peter and Elizabeth, timestamped at 5.30 a.m. Not because I got up early, but because I was up very, very early. I've read some of the articles, actually, that have had the, the greatest influence on me in the last year, things I would never have read during the day. I even dreamed up the trip to Scotland that Jewel and I took on the back end of the youth pilgrimage to Canterbury in 2019, way before I ever got a dog. More often, of course, my middle of the night time is filled by my brain screaming various things at me, such as things uh, at work that I've not done yet, or worries about something at home or rehashing a particularly concerning conversation I'd had the day before over and over and over again. Now I say all of this because I can see some of you here in the church nodding and I suspect some of you are nodding at home. I don't think I'm the only one who wakes up in the middle of the night and can't somehow meditate or count sheep their way back to sleep within minutes. I also say so because I'm increasingly convinced that these sleepless nights are actually valuable to us, even if they're unpleasant. And for one reason, because what occurs to us in the middle of the night is what we're left with when we are perfectly and totally alone with ourselves. Everyone else asleep the goings-on of our day still hours away. Nobody there, nothing to do, just ourselves, just existing. Us, our thoughts and our desires, for good, for bad, and for ugly. Whether we're dreaming up a vacation or worrying over a fight. Most of us living in wealthy modern democracies have precious few chances for such self-isolation and reflection. 
Although, to be clear, the pandemic gave many more of them to many of us than we would have liked. And I actually think many more of them than were actually good for many of us. But the frenzied pace of modern life into which we are all, by increasing degrees, tiptoeing back into, right? The frenzied pace of modern life is somewhat by design and somewhat by accident a way to avoid the discomfort and inconvenience of the things which occur to us in the middle of the night. Many of us, most of us, I'd gamble, live to be distracted from distraction by distraction, as T.S. Eliot put it. Chasing one form of diversion the moment we've squeezed all the life out of the last one. Going through life as though our days were like little tubes of toothpaste, eventually to be discarded in the wastebasket under the cabinet. Or as though our days were like cars on a runaway train hurtling off a cliff and we running opposite the engine, desperate to get off out the back of the train. Put another way, we often live on the surface of life and sometimes frantically so, in a frenzy, nervous of plumbing the depths too deeply, whether they are the depths of our joys or of our fears. And all this because, as Eliot, again, inimitably said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? It's just unmistakably true in the very best way. Humankind cannot bear very much reality, not only because much of the time it's too awful, but sometimes because it's too wonderful. Too wonderful, like when my best friend from college and I, on the evening before she left to work a summer camp and I prepared to move to New Haven, this would be the last time that we saw each other for at least a calendar year, maybe more, we didn't know, we parted on returning from one last dinner out by one of us darting out the elevator and saying, okay, goodbye, not even looking at the other. Have you ever said goodbye to someone you love like that? It's because it's almost too much. And I don't think this is always a bad thing, okay? I don't think it's always a bad thing. Pathological avoidance of life, its joys and its sorrows, is harmful to us, of course. That's reasonably obvious. We become disconnected from reality. Pathological avoidance is harmful, but the inability, actually, to put awful things particularly to bed, to put them down or to compartmentalize them, can be just as undesirable and painful. I'm reminded of sufferers of PTSD who cannot prevent painful and unbidden incursions of past trauma coming into their present consciousness. That's not good either. So it's not that we need always to live plugged into the real, as it were. Human beings really cannot bear very much reality because we aren't really equipped or prepared to, at least in the state that we find ourselves, our present fallen state, according to Christians. 
What we need, I think, isn't to force ourselves constantly to live at that great intensity, uh, to constantly stew in our regrets or our failures, or even to live life in such an intense state of happiness that we're in perpetual delirium. But what we need instead is to regularly and periodically engage with reality in healthy ways, notably by regular and honest reflection and conversation in things like therapy or confession or prayers of thanksgiving or rest taking or intentional vacations which aren't just about you know doing more stuff which many vacations are but i'll leave that to you as you begin to plan your summer we need things we need spaces in modern life that help us to live lives that are more real than not Places and spaces, times that can prepare us to bear the eternal weight of glory. In our lesson from 2 Corinthians this morning, St. Paul is riffing on an ancient philosophical idea that the world of eternity or the spiritual world is somehow more real than this world. Although he gives it a distinctly Christian incarnational spin. So the ancient Greeks thought that the spiritual world, the world of eternity, was more real than this world because it was just that. It was spiritual, not bodily, not fleshly, not characterized by things like podiums, which I can bang my fist on, or a body like this, which I can touch and feel. Paul says, no, that's not quite right. Eternity is more real than this world, but it's no less bodily or sensual. Just bodily and sensual in a different way. Way. That's one of the most interesting things that's happening in the course of 1st and 2nd Corinthians in the New Testament. The idea is that heaven is a redeemed reality, a redeemed world, a living, breathing reality into which this broken, sin-riddled one is gradually taken up through the gate of death. And in some sense, the life of the world to come is more real than this life, not less real than it. Because this life is scattered and disparate, colored by distractions necessary and unnecessary, truths with which we cannot bear to come to terms, relationships that we cannot seem to mend, loves that we cannot seem to share, losses that we cannot seem to recover, not to mention prevent. It changes not just for the better, but devastatingly for the worse. This is all somewhat like when in C.S. Lewis's allegory, the great divorce, the departed, the dead, arrive in what C.S. Lewis calls the gray town. The, the departed find that they're fog-like, ghostly feet are actually being pierced and punctured by the blades of grass as they walk over them. They're stunned by the green beauty of the grass around them, but then they're also shocked by how painful it is to walk on it. It's like walking on glass. And Lewis explains that only with time only by traveling further up and further in, only by choosing to continue along the path set before them, can the departed become solid enough in order for their feet not to be pierced by the grass. 
Can they become solid enough to bear eternity's density, as it were? As we are, human beings cannot bear very much reality. Somehow God must make us creatures who can. And this is what St. Paul says is happening even now, even in this life, even right around us in the company of believers. Those whose afflictions, specifically, he says, are preparing them for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Preparing them to bear the weight and the solidity of heaven. Paul said so partly to keep his friends and to keep us, I think, from despairing. Because all of those things which we long so desperately to avoid, which are so frustrating to us, things like suffering and silence and solitude and sleeplessness, all of these things can have a way, by grace, of concentrating us, of thickening up our sense of where we are, who we are, and whose we are, by clearing away everything else. In them we can discover our current state of mind and soul. And we can, moreover and more preciously, come very close to the experience of God, who in all the other curtains of life are pulled back, is the one who's really, really there. So the next time that you're up in the middle of the night, please say a prayer for me, because I might be awake too. And then ask yourself whether it has anything to tell you. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.